Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, yesterday we finally got the release of the initial estimate for the third quarter GDP. And that is the GDP estimate which the Atlanta Fed had originally come out at about 3.8 early on. And they had steadily reduced their estimate. They got down to as low as 1.9 before ratcheting it up a couple of times. And their estimate was at 2.1 when we got the official release. And the number came out at 2.9, not only much higher than what the Atlanta Fed had been estimating, but much higher than the consensus forecast, which had been 2.5. Now, I am very suspicious of this number. This is the strongest number in over two years. And it comes out less than two weeks before the election. And of course, one of the issues Donald Trump has had has been the weak GDP growth, which has averaged just 1% for the last three quarters. All of a sudden, it's 2.9. I mean, triple. Does anybody really believe that suddenly the U.S. economy in the fall of 2015 all of a sudden was three times as strong as it's been for the last three quarters? I mean, I don't think so. I don't believe that for a second. And I do believe that after the election, when we get the revisions, we will get a downward revision to this number. But, you know, even if this number were real, and even if it holds up, if you average the last four to get the entire year looking back, you're still barely at 1.5%. You're just below 1.5 for the entire year which is still extremely weak growth. But, you know, once you look beneath the surface of this 2.9, it's very easy to see how they rigged it, to use Donald Trump's expression. Uh, And not that it's, I don't know, some kind of a conspiracy, but look at these numbers. First of all, the result, and this is probably not part of the rib part, maybe this was accurate, but there was a 10% spike 
in exports. This is the biggest gain in exports in three years. And it's not, you know, manufactured products that we're exporting, right, where you got some high-paying jobs. It was primarily led by a surge, a one-time surge in soybean exports. Apparently, they had a really bad harvest down in South America. And so there was an extra amount of soybeans that we were able to export that under normal weather conditions, we wouldn't have been able to sell. And I read that if you take out the soybeans, because soybean exports accounted for one third, one third of the GDP growth. That means if it was a normal, you know, weather condition down in South America, and we just exported the normal uh, amount of soybeans, instead of 2.9%, we'd have got 1.9. That would have missed the Atlanta Fed number, and it would have uh, missed the consensus. So just based on soybeans alone. Now, you know, we don't have a lot of high-paying jobs down there on the farm. You know, you don't get paid a lot of money to pick soybeans. So this is not like some good news that we just had this huge uh, surge. Yeah, temporarily it helps out the farmers who own those beans. But, you know, it doesn't mean a hill of beans when it comes to the economy. But also, look at their inflation numbers. Because remember, all of this is based on the deflator, which I think, you know, significantly understates inflation. But if you look at the number that the government used for the third quarter, it's 35% lower than the assumption they made for the second quarter, right? Second quarter, uh, they used a deflator of 2.3, which maybe that sounds, you know, I mean, that's a little bit more believable. I still think it's too low. But for the third quarter, they decided to use 1.5. I think maybe even 1.4 and change, but rounded up to 1.5. Now, assuming that you used the same deflator in the third quarter as you used in the second quarter, because to me, I mean, most likely the relative pace of inflation hasn't slowed down. If anything, it's probably picked up. But let's say we use the same number, that would have taken another 0.8% off of the GDP. So if you factor out the one-off bump in soybeans, and then you use the same inflation that we used in the second quarter, in the third quarter, now you're down to 1.1, which is pretty much the same as we've had for the last three quarters. And to me, that makes more sense. If we grew at 1% for the prior three quarters, I doubt anything has changed in the third quarter. And so maybe it's the same. Now, the other factor that really boosted the GDP in the third quarter was a big boost in inventories. Now, I'm not really sure where that came from. Is it that retailers are just stocking up early for the Christmas season? In which case, we simply pulled forward GDP from the fourth quarter to the third quarter, which is very convenient for Hillary Clinton, because by the time we get the fourth quarter GDP numbers, you know, it'll be next year. The new president would have already been sworn in by the time we find out what the number was for Q4. And so if we got this big inventory build in, in Q3, then it's probably going to uh, you know, mean that Q4 numbers will be lower because we pulled that inventory growth into the third third quarter. And of course, I think once again, retailers are overestimating the ability of Americans to go shopping this Christmas season. As much as they want to buy stuff they can't afford, uh, they they, they can't afford it so much that they can't even do it. And so I think that 
these inventory builds again are going to weigh heavily on U.S. GDP next year. You know, also yesterday, in addition to the release of the uh, GDP numbers, we got the consumer sentiment number, which was below estimates. But not only that, it was the lowest consumer sentiment number in two years. So we got the highest GDP growth in two years, yet the lowest consumer sentiment in two years. That doesn't seem right. I mean, you figure consumers should be happy if the economy is growing so much faster uh, than it was in the past. Now, again, I think that the drop in consumer sentiment has to do or had to do with the diminished probability of a Donald Trump victory as consumers rely themselves on the prospects of four more years of hell, which they've gone through under Obama, and now they're going to have to go through it under Hillary. Although now, look, given some of the new polling data, I just read a poll, most recent uh, poll on ABC, showed that the gap between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, even in the official polls, had now narrowed to just two points. And that was before the FBI dropped the bombshell on Friday with respect to them reopening the investigation that they never should have closed. In fact, they should have closed it because they should have indicted her, but they're now reopening the email investigation. And that that announcement came out early in the trading day. And in fact, I was looking at my phone, looking at quotes because I was down in my booth. I'm here in New Orleans at the investment conference. And all of a sudden I saw a big spike in gold. In fact, at one point it was up 15 bucks. And I saw the dollar tank, the dollar index was down 50 or 60. And I was wondering what just happened. I mean, what, what came out that caused that? And then I looked on my, the news and I saw what was going on with the FBI and Hillary. And of course I know, and I, in fact, I went on, they called me and I went on uh, CNBC. And, you know, I tried to put my CNBC interview from yesterday up on my YouTube channel. And then NBC filed a, a copyright infringement on it. And they took it down. And I'm not really sure why they did that because I've been putting up videos from CNBC. In fact, the last video I put up of my uh, Fast Money CNBC, we got almost a quarter of a million views on on my channel alone. I mean, that's more people than watch uh, Fast Money on CNBC. So you would think that they would like the publicity. But, you know, I did talk positively about Donald Trump. So I don't know. Is that a coincidence or not? The only time I talk, you know, real politics, they had me on to talk about Trump. And then I put it up on my YouTube channel, and there is a copyright violation filed about it. But it's no secret that the markets want Hillary Clinton to be you know, elected. And so when this news came out, and all of a sudden, hey, wait a minute, maybe this is going to put the Hillary Clinton sure thing re-election in jeopardy, and the market sold off, and you know, the dollar sold off, and, and gold rallied. Because why does Wall Street, you know, why does Wall Street want Hillary Clinton? Because Hillary Clinton continues the status quo, which everybody on Wall Street likes. I mean, the big bankers, look at all the money that the Wall Street bankers are donating to the Hillary Clinton campaign. I mean, there's a reason that they're giving all this money to Hillary Clinton, and it's not out of patriotism. I mean, why do you think they paid her? She was collecting $250,000 a pop to talk to Goldman Sachs. I mean, what could she possibly say that's worth $250,000? What could she say that's worth 50 bucks? I mean, I, I mean, there's nothing. And it's not like she's entertaining as a speaker. She's not that dynamic. People probably bored out of their mind listening to Hillary Clinton talk. No, these speeches 
were payoffs or paybacks. It's advanced bribes or maybe bribes to things that already happened. That's what's going on here. That's why they're setting up all these arrangements. So if there's some kind of jeopardy between the cozy relationship that the banks have with the government, with the Federal Reserve, they don't want Donald Trump upsetting that apple cart because there's a chance that that game is going to end if Donald Trump is president. I mean, we don't know for sure. We know it'll definitely continue if Hillary is is president, but Donald Trump is an unknown, and there's a good chance that he's going to go there and try to clean house, drain the swamp, which is what he's saying, and they don't want that swamp drained. And so the market sold off. But this is a very interesting development that's going on because apparently, you know, Hillary destroyed but over 30,000 emails. And the worst part is she destroyed them after she got a congressional subpoena. You know, had she been smarter, she would have destroyed them a long time ago. She wouldn't have waited. That's how arrogant she was. But then she actually gets a subpoena. And then the subpoena says, hey, don't, you know, preserve those records. They're under subpoena. We want you to bring them in. And then she destroys them, which alone is a criminal offense that should have lined her in jail. Uh, but nothing happened. But now, apparently, as part of this Anthony Weiner investigation, you know, because he's been sexting with, you know, underage girls. So they confiscated his computer. But apparently, the computer that he was using has over 10,000 or something emails. Uh, of uh, of his wife's, you know, who uh, Uno, who works in the uh, as as an aide or uh, to Hillary Clinton, and apparently, maybe a thousand or more of the emails that Hillary destroyed were emails that were sent to her that are now there preserved on Anthony Weiner's laptop. Now, how they got you know from hers to his? I mean, Donald Trump actually warned about this a while ago. And he thought, hey, you know, this could be very suspicious because she knows about Hillary's uh, personal email account. Maybe Wiener knows about it. And who knows what he's doing with the information. And and so now this stuff is coming out. So this stuff was announced. And now I think this potentially can turn the dynamic. Because now they're not talking about girls anymore that are accusing Donald Trump of, uh, you know, inappropriately kissing him. It, the, the election now, or the Coverage is now shifting from Trump's indiscretions with women and how Trump treats women to Hillary Clinton and the criminal activity uh, that she has been covering up. So this is a very, very important development to the extent that maybe a lot of the salacious bombshells that dropped, you know, maybe maybe the, the media has gone by. Those stories are old now. That's old news. We got 10 days till the election. And now the media is going to be focused on a brand new topic because, you know, you want to get ratings now. I mean, they've already played out that story. They, you know, they might have miscalculated when they released that audio from Billy Bush. Maybe they should have waited till a couple of days before the election because now people are forgetting about that and everything that followed. And now they're focusing on this new FBI investigation. And of course, Hillary Clinton is demanding that they release everything. Now, that, I mean, that seems suspicious to me. Maybe she's demanding it because that's not going to happen. I mean, if she actually thought the information was going to be released, I'm sure she wouldn't be demanding that it be released. Maybe that's just, you know, showboating because she knows that it's not going to come out. But hopefully it will come out. But either way, just having it out there allows uh, Trump to turn the, the dynamics of this conversation. And maybe even Hillary Clinton is not going to be able to uh, get any traction out of this trumped up GDP number because now she's too busy deflecting uh, talk about the emails that might be on uh, uh, Wiener's computer 
and this new resurgent investigation. Also, we got more news that shows that the consumer is not in as good a shape as is generally perceived because Amazon came out with very disappointing earnings. I mean, Amazon, that's where a lot of people are shopping. And if they're not shopping as much as people thought, then obviously that's an indication that things are not as doing as well as people thought. Maybe this big inventory build that so goosed the third quarter GDP was another mistake because you've got a lot of unsold goods on the shelves, cluttering up the shelves. In fact, nowhere do you see this inventory overhang more predominant than in the automobile sector. In fact, there was news out this week, read the story, I think it was in the Times, about the glut of used cars and the fact that used car prices now, since 2008, this is the first time that they're falling since 2008. What happened in 2008? We started the Great Recession. Well, the last time we saw a drop in used car prices of any significance was in 2008, and it's happening again now. And this is supposedly when the economy is so strong that the Fed's going to raise rates because they're data dependent. And now you're getting data on used car prices that shows that we have a big glut. Now, why is there a glut? Because number one, you had a number of people who leased cars. And when you lease a car, typical lease is maybe about three years, and you lease the car and the lease is up, and now you just turn the car in, right? And and now the the automobile dealers have all these used cars that have now come off lease that they need to sell. See, because a lot of the people who lease the cars can't actually afford to buy them because when your lease runs out, right, you have an option. You can buy the car, but very few people do. You know, I think what's going to happen, too, is a lot of people who lease cars probably never leased them before. They used to be able to buy them, but they couldn't afford to do that. But they got such a sweetheart deal on the lease. And part of the reason that leasing was so cheap, one, was low interest rates, courtesy of the Fed. But the other part was the assumption of the residual value of the car, right? Because people assume that the car has a certain use value because the lender gets the car back and now they have to sell it. And so the lease payment is also a function about what they believe the car is going to be worth at the end of the lease. The problem is if you have massive leasing and now you have a lot of leases maturing at the same time, you have a lot of inventory to sell which means what they assume the residual values would be is going to be too high. And the actual value is going to be lower, especially, and I believe a lot of the people who lease cars and who maybe don't have a lot of experience leasing, maybe it's the first time they leased, right? Because leasing as a percentage of car sales was an all-time record high in this bubble. I bet a lot of people who lease these cars, I bet they drove too many miles. Because you know when you get a lease, you know it's a 10,000-mile lease, a 12,000-mile lease. There are some people that drive 15,000, 20,000 miles a year. That's a lot of miles. And, you know, you go and turn in your lease and there's like, I don't know, 20, 30 cents penalty per mile extra. So people could turn in their cars and they can owe three, four, five thousand dollars six thousand $5,000, because they have extra mileage. Then plus, what if there's some damage? You know, you, you have some dings, some, some you know, you've, you've you know, banged up your car a little bit. Usually when you return the car, you know, they'll give you a couple of little scratches, right? You know, if you, if you can cover it up with a credit card, Okay, but if it's bigger than a credit card, you got to pay. And then the tires, too. You know, if the tires don't have enough tread, you need new tires. Tires are expensive. So you turn in your lease, you're over mileage, you got bald tires, and you got a few scratches, you got thousands and thousands of dollars of penalties. I bet a lot of people who lease the cars can't make the payments. They don't have the money. So now what are the what are the lenders going to do? What are they, Nothing. They can't get blood from a stone. So not only do they have a car 
that's worth a lot less than they thought because now you have a glut of used cars on the market. But the cars, the car needs work and it's got too many miles. And so this is this could be a disaster because there's all kinds of bonds that have been collateralized based on these car leases, just like there were mortgages collateralized, uh, or you know, by subprime mortgages. Well, that you have subprime lending, and you got bonds collateralized by auto loans, just like they were collateralized by mortgages. And again, the assumptions that were originally made by the lenders are going to prove to be too optimistic when it comes to the ultimate value of the security. And that means losses, right? That means losses for investors. This is just starting to happen. The air is coming out of this auto bubble. Nobody is really paying attention to this, but it's here and it's happening. And another big issue, and Donald Trump is able to hammer on this, which I think is going to help him here in the waning days of the campaign, rather, is Obamacare and the surge, the surging Obamacare premiums. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, some people are getting their premiums doubled. But average is probably going to be much more than the 25% increase. There are a lot of people that are going to see their premiums increase next year, 50% or more. They're getting their notices now, so they know it's coming. You see, that's part of the thing that Obama designed a lot of this to happen, a lot of the bad things to happen after 2017, because, you know, that's he's no longer president. So even the penalty, there's a big jump next year in the penalty for not buying insurance. And that happens in 2017. So, you know, Obama's out of Dodge. But I guess the problem is some of the announcements are coming out now and Hillary has to deal with it because the election hasn't happened yet. So some of this stuff is blown up on her campaign. So even though Obama's out of Dodge, Hillary's stuck there. And this is going to be a bigger issue. But, you know, I read this article in the New York Times. And this article was about the fact that the penalty for not buying insurance, right, the penalty tax was too low and that a lot of Americans were opting to pay the penalty instead of buying insurance. Now, this is exactly what I said and wrote was going to happen from day one. And now the New York Times finally, finally gets around to writing a story that they should have written from the very beginning. Instead, I was writing this kind of stuff, not the New York Times. In fact, I pointed out, and nobody pointed this out but me at the time when the Supreme Court ruled this this unconstitutional tax to be constitutional, the way they were able to justify this is the Supreme Court said that the tax itself is so low that it won't actually compel behavior. Remember, one of the reasons that it was challenged is the people challenging Obamacare said it's unconstitutional because the law requires you to buy a product and the government cannot require you to buy something. And if they can't do it directly, they can't do it indirectly by taxing you for not buying it. And that's a valid argument. It's 100 percent true. And so they went to the Supreme Court with that argument. And what the Supreme Court argued to justify the tax is they said, Well, yes, the government can't force you to do something with the tax, and they're not doing that with this tax because the tax is so low that it's not going to actually force anybody to buy insurance because insurance is so much more expensive than the tax. People will simply pay the tax instead of buying insurance. And so the irony is that the Supreme Court said Obamacare is only constitutional because it won't work. 
That's how ridiculous it is. And what I wrote at the time, I said, eventually, they're going to have to dramatically increase the penalties in, that, in order to force people to buy the insurance. Because Obamacare is based on forcing young, healthy people to overpay for insurance so that older, sick people can get something for nothing. Well, the problem is the young, healthy people, A, don't have the money, but they don't have the desire to buy something that they don't need because if they ever get sick, well, then they can buy the insurance then because there's no ability to discriminate based on pre-existing conditions. So I said that what was going to happen was young, healthy people would drop out. They would pay the tax, which is exactly what they're doing. And then the cost of staying in would skyrocket, which is exactly what's happening because you're having surging premiums. And I said that as premiums surge, then more and more people will decide to pay the tax instead of the premiums. And that is what's going to happen. And the whole thing is going to unravel. And I said the only way to save it potentially would be to dramatically increase the amount of the tax, the tax penalty, to actually force people to buy what the Supreme Court acknowledged the tax was too low to compel. But I said that I bet if the government then jacks the, the, the penalty tax way up, that it's still going to be constitutional because who is going to go back to the Supreme Court, right? And now all the way back up again and say, okay, you said it was constitutional when the tax was really low, but now they've increased it tenfold and now it's so expensive. Is anybody going to be able to get this case all the way back up to the Supreme Court again? Not a chance. So in other words, the Supreme Court says it's constitutional only because the penalty is really low. And then after they uh, they get the constitutional you know verdict, now they jack the penalty way up. But if it, had the penalty been way up initially, then the tax would have been, then the whole uh, Affordable Care Act would have been held unconstitutional. But because the, the penalty tax was low, when they argued before the Supreme Court, they said, okay, it's constitutional because it's low. Well, now they jack it up high, which would mean it's unconstitutional, except no one's going to care because the Supreme Court's not going to get a chance to rule on it again. But of course, ultimately, it's not going to work at all. And what where we're really headed and where Hillary Clinton will take us, I have no doubt in my mind that Hillary Clinton wants single payer. She wants socialized health insurance. And that's where Obamacare takes us because it completely destroys whatever was left of the free market system. And so once you've destroyed health care, now you can come as the savior. Just like, you know, the Federal Reserve, you know, almost destroys the economy by inflating a housing bubble, which bursts. And then you have a financial crisis. And now they claim credit for saving us, right? They're the firemen. They, they set your house on fire. And then they show up to put out the fire and they want credit, right? That's what the government's going to want. For destroying our healthcare system, now they're going to say, "Oh, you know, you need us to save it," which is, you know, one of the reasons uh, that you know I prefer Trump over Clinton because there's no way he's going to do that. Now, of course, I know on his stump speech he talks about repealing and replacing. Now, I don't know. Maybe the pollster said you can't just repeal Obamacare; you got to say you're going to replace it. But you know, he never says what he's going to replace it with, and I'm hoping he's not going to replace it with anything except the free market. And that would technically not be a lie, right? We're going to cancel, we're going to repeal Obamacare and replace it with the free market, right? So just leave off the words free market, you're still replacing it. Just a lot of people assume that he wants to replace it with another government program. Hopefully that is not the case. What we want to bring back to the healthcare system is the free market because we've replaced the free market with government. 
And I want to get rid of government and bring back the free market so the free market can do for healthcare what it's done for technology. You know, one of the crazy things, too, about healthcare, and one of the reasons that all the proponents of big government, they want to claim that, you know, healthcare is somehow different than other goods, is they say, well, you know, healthcare gets, you know, they come up with new things and more creative things, more sophisticated things. So it's more complicated. And because it's more sophisticated and more complicated, you know, it's more expensive. That's nonsense. I mean, how much more complicated and sophisticated are cell phones today than they were five or 10 years ago? But how much cheaper are they today than they were five or 10 years ago? How much more technology is in our laptops or in our, our, our television sets? You know, be having more technology, being more complicated and being more sophisticated doesn't mean, mean more expensive. Not in the free market. The free market does two things. It increases quality while it decreases price. Government does the opposite, right? It, it decreases quality and increases price. And that's what's going on in, in, in healthcare. And of course, it's going to go on even worse if uh, Hillary Clinton gets elected. But maybe, maybe the odds of Trump. But I've been saying, look, I still see, I look at these polls. And yes, yes, I mean, there's a big margin of error. And in general, uh, uh, Clinton has been way ahead. And I know that there is a predisposition of a lot of people to just vote Democrat because they're just impoverished. And they believe the only hope they have is for the government to steal money and give it to them. I mean, that's part of the reason that the government, particularly the left, wants to trap people in poverty because they, they buy those voters, right? They cripple people and say, here, I got the crutch. Vote for me and I'll help you walk, right? But meanwhile, it's the government that cripples them. So the more dependent voters they can create, the more voters who think their only way out of poverty is, is government. But government is why they're in poverty. And the real way out of poverty is free market capitalism. But maybe, maybe there's people are in such despair even as, again, President Obama's own advisor, Donna Brazil, coming out and admitting how desperate the situation is for most Americans. Maybe it's so bad. And maybe Hillary Clinton's criminal activity is now, you know, the focal point of the campaign in the waning days. And again, as I said, maybe the polls don't quite reflect people who want to vote for Trump but for whatever reason are embarrassed about acknowledging that that's what they're going to do to whoever is running the polls or the fact that I do believe that there is a large percentage of Trump voters who are highly motivated and who honestly believe that Donald Trump can deliver on his promises. I think the percentage of Hillary voters who actually think anything is going to get better if they elect her is extremely small. And therefore, they are much less motivated to actually go out and vote. And certainly there's still a lot of residual distrust and hate for Hillary on the part of Bernie Sanders supporters. And as much as Bernie is out there encouraging his supporters uh, to go and vote and hold their nose and vote for Hillary, a lot of them probably don't want to do it. And so this, this election, as I said, is hardly in the bag. It is not the sure thing that the media makes it out to be, there still is a good probability uh, that this is a Brexit or this is a, a Bundy verdict. You know, you hear, you, there's that verdict where uh, everybody assumed uh, that the individuals involved in this were going to be convicted. And nobody predicted an acquittal. And of course, now I hear in the media, oh, this is, you know, this is 
this they're only being acquitted because they're white and they show that this is a double standard. It's got nothing to do with the fact that the defendants were white. What it has to do with the fact is that there was sympathy among the jury members for their plight and their circumstances. And they're upset at the government. They're upset at the status quo. They understand that their own situation has been deteriorating. And this is a way of standing up. Is it a way? Is it a form of jury nullification? Are they trying to send a message to the government that they're mad as hell and they're not going to take it anymore? Well, maybe the jurors are sending that message and the powers that be still don't get that message. Well, the voters of this country may be willing to send a similar message as those jurors. And that message can be sent by voting for Donald Trump and against the establishment, against the media, against Wall Street, against everybody that they perceive is the problem. And hopefully the solution isn't a man, but a principle is freedom, is liberty. We can make America great again. It's not about Donald Trump. It's about Donald Trump dismantling all of the government that took away our greatness. Right now we have a great government and we have a weak country. I want the opposite. What makes a country great is a small government. When governments are small, individuals are great. Individuals do great things. You can't have a great government and a great country. It's one or the other. So if we want to make America great, we've got to dismantle the government that's preventing us from being great. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies. Hi, this is Peter Schiff, and long before foreign governments were buying gold, I urged my clients to put 5 to 10% of their portfolios into physical precious metals. Despite gold's massive rise over the last decade, I still think that a 5 to 10% allocation to gold and silver is a smart investment decision. But buyers have to beware. Big TV gold dealers push all sorts of coins that are poor investments. Bait-and-switch deals, price protection guarantees, leveraged gold accounts. These are just a few of the sleazy tactics used to swindle inexperienced gold buyers. My gold company is different. We never offer a coin or bar unless I consider it to be a good investment. I want my customers to be educated. That's why I'm offering you a free research report exposing the biggest scams and ripoffs in the industry. Download my report, Classic Gold Scams, and how to avoid getting ripped off for free at goldscams.com. This report tells you everything you need to know about how to avoid losing thousands of dollars with scam gold dealers. It even tells you how to tell if a salesman is lying to you on the phone. 
This is a must-read for anyone considering a gold or silver investment. Download this free report today at goldscams.com. That's goldscams.com.